You are now listening to the Socks and Sandals Podcast. What up, what up, and welcome you all back to the Socks and Sandals Podcast, where society, culture, history, and religion collide, and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. It's your guy, Emmanuel. I'm back. I'm not in the kitchen. I'm in my bedroom because my wife has commandeered the kitchen as her office, so the dining room is gone, but I'm here in the bedroom making it happen, um, and I got my guy. I got the got the big homie, Ryan Petaway, with me, man. He's, he's, a, he's an amazing dude, a professor of public health at Portland State University. Got his master's, got his PhD. So this brother is very informed. He knows what he's talking about. Ryan, say what's up to the people, bro. What's up? Man, man, I, I appreciate you for coming on, bro, in these strange, you know, uncharted waters of times that we're in, man. But, you know, this is this is, this is is something that we need, and I'm glad to get you on here because you are informed. And this is like, if any time, if there's been any time in history that we need to know about public health, it's now, bro. So I appreciate you, man. Yeah, definitely, for sure. No doubt, man. So really quickly, before we get going, um, tell the people a little bit more about who you are, where you're from, and what's a typical day in the life of Ryan Pedway. Oh, man. Uh, where should I start that one at? Right. Um, so I guess, uh, yeah, just quickly, yes, yeah, so I'm a professor of public health, public health researcher, scientist, uh, doctor of public health. Um, I'm trained as a social epidemiologist. And so generally what that means is epidemiology, you study uh, patterns and causes of disease uh, and social epidemiology. Epidemiology, for an example, like heart disease, um, a regular epidemiologist will look at heart disease, who, who has heart disease, who's dying from it most, and what's causing it. Mm-hmm. A social epidemiologist would be looking at things like racism, sexism, classism, um, heterosexism, homophobia, all those things, and looking at how those larger structural factors affect who's having heart disease, right? Wow. So, uh, so the context of, uh, in terms of my technical training, in terms of uh, what I do right now, I'm also... Uh, uh, community-engaged researchers. I do community-based participatory research and youth participatory research. So I work with communities to kind of, uh, as co-researchers, to go out and kind of um, do public health research in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only been in Portland for about three and a half years. Before that, I did my doctorate at Berkeley. Uh, I did my master's at the University of Michigan. Um, before I did the doctorate, I was the head of the epidemiology department in Baltimore City Health Department. Uh, I was actually there working as an epidemiologist back in 2009 when the H1N1 uh, pandemic kind of dropped. And wow. so that was a a learning moment. That was like one year, maybe one year, a little over one year out of my master's program. So that things got real, real quick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, originally from the East Coast, Pittsburgh area. Uh, my pot's family's from Detroit. Um, and so I've spent a lot, most of my life on the East Coast, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Baltimore, uh, then the Bay and then in Portland. Um, the day in the life of, of me right now, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I teach classes, I do research, um, I write, um, you know, publications, books, poetry, music, those types of things. Um, I got a two and a half year old or almost three year old right now who can say quarantine and use it correctly. He knows the difference between isolation and quarantine, which is interesting because most folks in the media still don't know that difference. And we're like, how many months into this thing now? My two and a half year old is schooling cats out here right now. Um, My partner is an oncology nurse. Um, and so all of her patients are, would be considered high risk. They're all immunocompromised. Right. And so it's kind of real on the healthcare front for her as a worker. Um, and I should also say uh, in terms of uh, broader context, in terms of my, professional and personal connection to some of the things that are going on right now with COVID-19. Um, uh, my mom is stocking shelves at the grocery store and she has COPD. She's at high risk. She's essential mm. and essentially at high risk stocking uh, grocery store shelves on the night shift. Uh, my dad's a truck driver. 
uh, essentially at high risk with diabetes, delivering the loads for these these, these places. Wow. Uh, one of my brothers is a brick mason building these places with asthma. And my other brother is a works at a distribution warehouse, uh, moving things around to be sent to the grocery stores with a forklift. Right. So uh, my entire immediate family is at high risk right now, uh, including everybody in my household. Right. So I think that uh, it's very, very real for a lot of us out here. It's especially real for me. And I think that I'm in a, a interestingly unique position to have um, so many connections to the relevance of what's going on right now. So uh, definitely happy to be here and be a part of this conversation. Man, that's that's wild, bro. Like your family is really in like everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone is in this, man. Oh, yeah. goodness. So, man, that that rocked me right there, bro. So that now that even makes even more sense. And I don't know if if you are if you would like to or if if, if that's cool when it comes to like your poem and being able to share that because that makes so much sense in your poem. At the end of it, you talked about like the different like your your family, but then it was like the different um, situations like the diabetes, the asthma, and all that. So that's that's real. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. Real. Okay. Okay. That's all I talk about. Already, man. That's all day, every day. That's what we're here for. Well, yeah, man. Well, we got a lot to talk about, man. Before I get into what I have planned to get into, can you <clears throat> can you clarify the terminology for me? Because yeah. I think that's, <clears throat> and you already alluded to it. That's one of the biggest things where like there's a lot of confusion coming in um, that may or may not be detected by everyone, but I, I definitely see it and I, and I feel it and I wrestle with it. And so can you clarify, like, just on a basic level, the difference between pandemic and epidemic? Yeah. So generally pandemic means that it's like everywhere. Okay. Uh, epidemic means that it's a broad spread distribution, but not necessarily going through multiple countries, multiple continents. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can have epidemic, but it can be like, a like, you know, air quotes, like a localized epidemic, right? It could be a massive outbreak that's beyond what's normally expected, right? Yeah. So this idea of endemic, right? There's a baseline, this disease or infection is already in a population mm-hmm. and you can kind of predict it and model it from year to year or from like season to season or whatever like that. Um, and it becomes endemic, right? Like flu would be like an endemic thing, right? Okay. Um, and a flu epidemic would be like a new strain or a more virulent strain that's different from the, the previous uh, versions, right? And so it could be an, a new thing that becomes a larger scale um, infection or, or outbreak rate and pandemic would be something that is on a scale that's way beyond um you know a local context or a regional context or like a national context right um that's a very rough um thing but i think that if we can understand the difference between being endemic um uh, an epidemic and then pandemic what we're at right now um i think that would be you know that was sh- that should suffice uh, to clarify a little bit for um, sure and so when when COVID 19 was being reported, you know, um, early in early in the year yep. in Wuhan, China. At that point, it wasn't a pandemic until what? Until it went to Italy or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you can go. You know, the World Health Organization will note or articulate something as a pandemic based on their interpretation of what's going on. Right. So basically, when it was concentrated in China, it was considered an epidemic. Okay. Um, once it got to South Korea and other places, it wasn't immediately that it's automatically a pandemic, right? Um, so like that finite line, I don't know if it's a definitive line, right? But once you start to see large spread, global spread, uncontained spread, mm-hmm. um, there's no indication that it's under control. It's kind of like a wildfire, right? You know, they always give you like it's 15% of the control, 50% of the control, right? Um, if there's any indication that it's going to increase spreading uh, and it's not under control, 
Um, that's usually when it's like, it's going to be pandemic, right? Um, I don't really know, you know, I haven't been a part of those conversations about when the World Health Organization was like, okay, it's called a pandemic now, right? Um, and that could be a source of the confusion, right? I think that a lot of folks in public health, particularly in epidemiology, they'll look at it, and it's definitely epidemic when it's just in China, right? Um, and you could probably... You could probably argue a little bit about that, too, on some levels, right? Um, but I think a lot of folks in the public health community, epi community, once they saw that it was started to pop up in, like, seven or eight other countries, mm -hmm. um, they might not immediately call it pandemic. But as soon as you start to see those seven or eight, nine, ten other countries get multiple thousands of cases, then it's like, yeah, this is going all over the place. This is a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So, for sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. Man, it's kind, so, it's kind of just like, it's going to take time, but basically when there's thousands of cases in multiple locations, then that's when they would slap that label on it. Yeah, that would be an un uh, unmistakable scenario, right? Sure. Like, I don't really know whether or not if there were three cases in the U.S. and three, if there, like, if each country, if there were, like, 100 countries that each had two cases, I don't know whether or not, right. you know, that would, I don't know whether we get that label I don't, from a technical sense, right? Because there's only two cases, and it suggests that it's under control, right? So there's, a, I think there's some, there's definitely some, some nuance to it. But generally, yeah, if it's all over the place, it's a pandemic. Yeah. <clears throat> and then there's there's what you mentioned, the World Health Organization. And me personally, I have an issue with them just because of um, the little bit of research I've been doing just around, uh, I don't know, like the elite secret society, skull and bones and their relationships and their their involvement in the World Health Organization and other major organizations. Um, I don't trust a lot of what they say. But that's why I got someone like yourself <laughs> up here in front of me, because I, I need to hear from somebody who doesn't have any skin in the game, for lack of a better term. You know what I mean? So um, I appreciate that. bro. Um, yeah, there are lots of coronavirus. All right. So from my understanding, the coronavirus is something like COVID-19 is a coronavirus, correct? Yeah. And so uh, there are multiple versions of coronavirus so can you break down decipher the terms of <clears throat> coronavirus versus covid19 yeah. versus sars cov2 because there's all these terms yeah. but what does each individual one mean and what are their relationships to each other yeah so uh and hopefully i don't butcher this <laughs> but yeah so coronavirus is a it's a broad category of viruses right Mm -hmm. um, there are, I don't know, thousands of them, right? So there are regular colds that are coronaviruses, right? Um, that, you know, anybody walking around right now probably has already had multiple coronaviruses in their lifetimes, right? That's wild. Um, and this particular one, um, I think the, uh, the technical name that was given to it, once it was sequence, uh, was SARS-CoV-2. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, it's basically a coronavirus, a specific coronavirus um, that is similar to the, the coronavirus um, that was spreading through the population with SARS back in 2004. Um, so my understanding is that that was the, the arrival upon uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, COVID-19 uh, became the thing, um, I think in part because coronavirus is way too generic, right? Um, and then also uh, SARS-CoV-2 is like two like biomedical lab sounding, right? COVID-19 became a thing. It's basically stands for coronavirus and um, coronavirus disease, right? Um, and they put 19 on it because that's when the first case was detected. It was in December of 2019, right? So COVID-19 is basically coronavirus disease uh, 2019. So to sp uh, specify that it was part of, of a strain um, 
of coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, that started to take roots and spread in 2019. So now it's called COVID-19. Um, I should say, though, this, and I don't know where the science is on this in terms of the lab and the sequencing, right, but these viruses mutate pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it'll, I expect that there will be some, some further you know, analysis, lab analysis to come out to um, actually start labeling specific um, versions of this something else at some point in the future that it might be referred generically to COVID-19, but once things start to mutate, they might be drastically different and it, there might be some renaming that ends up happening in the future. Right. Okay. So that, that's kind of what I was, the conclusion I was coming to, but I'm glad you brought that down. So coronavirus, once again, is just a broad general term for a type of viral infection or some type of cold. So a common cold could be a coronavirus, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, SARS-CoV-2 is is similar to the SARS epidemic that happened in 04? Uh, I wouldn't say that it's... So I can't really speak to, like, the similarity in terms of the actual, like, sequencing, right? Okay. Um, but they're definitely... They're both RNA uh, viruses. They're both of the same... Um, you know, they're both coronaviruses. Um, in terms of, like, the similarities in terms of the pathogenicity, uh, the method of infection. I can't really speak too much precisely in terms of similar in that capacity, but they're definitely similar in the sense that they're coronaviruses um, and that they're RNA-based viruses, right? And that they have this um, very similar uh, um, symptoms, right? Okay. Because it's, it's weird because, you know, like I said, the, the, the order of operations that the media has been going about this and the different terminology that they that they're introducing into yep. the language around it, it's just like, all right, why why are they keep changing it? So it starts Corona, then it's COVID nineteen, and now I'm seeing SARS CoV two, and I'm yep. and I'm researching like what was going on back when the original SARS came out, yeah, MERS and all that type of stuff. I'm like, all right, yep. so is this is this the same thing as SARS and MERS, but they're just calling it COVID nineteen? Is this like the 2019 version of the exact same thing you know so no, I, yeah yeah no it wouldn't be the exact same thing because i okay. think that these types of rna viruses mutate so rapidly um that now nah, it would be a different um there might be some similarities but mm-hmm. it would it wouldn't be the same thing right okay um it would i i guess and this is just me like just assuming a bit much right sure. but like i i don't think that there is any you know articulation or uh framing of this uh to my knowledge right now that this was the 2004 strain that just evolved so much, and it's the same thing, but it's originally 2004. I don't think that's the case. This is an entirely new um, novel strain of the coronavirus. Okay. So I don't know if you've been kind of tracking the way that it's been infecting people, but like when when it first happened, when it was first popping off in China and then Italy, and then it kind of first landed in the United States, you know, the numbers that I was looking at and the data that I was looking at, it was like, you know, 80% of the people had mild, you know, symptoms. And then maybe 14% of people had serious symptoms. And then like four to 5% of people had, had to be on ICU. And, and then when it come, when it came to those that were most, you know, impacted, or when it came to the fatal cases, it typically was happening to people that were 60 up. And really, like most people were like 80 and 90 years old that were dying. And so and then when the when the celebrities were getting it, 
they didn't have any symptoms, you know, uh, three, four weeks ago, two weeks ago. But recently, I should say three or four weeks ago. Yes. But recently, that is not the case. It seems, in my opinion, just just outside looking in, there are everyday people that it's not just the, the 50, 60, 70 year olds. Now it's like 20, 30. It don't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how healthy or non-healthy you are. People are getting it and they're being violently ill. And everybody's uh, explaining it like they feel like they've been hit by a truck. They can't breathe. And they're like extremely healthy, you know, pinnacles of health. Yes. So do you think that what's going around now is a stronger mutated version or are the celebrities just getting a different strand? Like, I don't, I'm trying to figure out what. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's could be a few things. Right. And I don't think that folks really know yet. Um, I think part of it's because the, the fact that it's new is we don't really have answers to these questions definitively. Right. Okay. Um, but generally, generally anything that's affecting your respiratory system, you would expect the folks that are a little bit older that have uh, underlying comorbidities that are specifically respiratory, like asthma, COPD would be affected. Right. But then also, when you're infected, your body has to go through a bunch of response to try to fight off the infection, right? And that's going to involve not only respiration, but also blood flows and all of other, other things, right? And so folks that have diabetes, high blood pressure, stroke, uh, had strokes before, heart disease, those things are going to be at higher risk as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and then also with just aging, right? Your lung capacity generally gets, like, it's, it's, it's it, you know, it's worse with age, right? Um, this is a natural part of life, right? And so that's why you would expect folks that are older and or with underlying comorbidities to be affected most severely, um, not be to be infected the most, but to be affected most severely when they get right. infected, right? Mm-hmm. The younger population, age is not a protector, right? You can still get infected, and just because you're young doesn't mean you can't get severely uh, affected, right? Uh, especially if you have underlying conditions. And so some of these folks that are younger, um, I haven't seen any representative data that, that outlines whether they had underlying comorbidities, right? Or what their lung capacity was or anything like that, right? Um, so a chronic smoker, and this is just me like kind of just throwing something out there and whether or not there's any science out there right now to, to confirm any of this. Right. Um, but if someone is 27 years old and they smoke like a pack of cigarettes a day, um, and they have asthma, if they get infected with like, there's a, why would you not expect it to be a little bit more severe than somebody who was 27 and never smoked and doesn't have asthma. Right. Mm. Um, so there's a spectrum of, of things that would change individual risk. Right. And I think this is what's important. And from a public health and population health standpoint is to distinguish the causes between cases and the causes of incidents, right? Uh, if you and I are two people from the same population and say it's our population is is young African-American men under the age of 40, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like if that's our population um, and folks that are young African-American men under the age of, of 40 are getting uh, infected at a certain rate, well, there's something that, and that rate's different from folks who are not in our, our population. And there's something about what's going on to us as a group of young black men under 40, right? Mm-hmm. But once we're in our own group, what the difference is between me getting affected versus you getting affected, that's an individual thing. Um, and without having specific ind- individual information on each person's getting infected, we can't determine whether or not it's just an, a generic age thing or whether it's something unique specific to those individuals, right? Yeah. But I think the important takeaway is that folks understand that everybody can get infected. Um, so why risk it, right? And it's not just about you. This isn't, this isn't like this, like it's all about me, like rugged American individual thing, uh, individualism thing, right? This is about... Um, ourselves, obviously, because we're the, the bodies that are going to be the, uh, acquiring infection, but we then present a risk to other folks that might be more vulnerable than us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like an ultimate asshole move to be like, oh, I'm young and I'm healthy, so I'm going to be good regardless, right? That's like the ultimate selfish asshole move to do right now, right? Because it's not just about us. Um, and so I think that 
for the folks that are out there young getting infected, um, that's, that's going to happen. There's, there's probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of people that are under age 40 infected right now, and they may or may not know it, right? Mm. Um, the ones that end up showing the severe symptoms, they might have underlying conditions. Uh, they might not. Um, my guess is that a lot of them probably have underlying conditions, but for the ones that don't, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because when you start to estimate risk and uh, you have these distribution of risk curves, right? There's always, you know, like, let's just say like 99% of people that are 25, no underlying conditions, perfect, like, you know, uh, respiratory system intact, right? Like 99% of people under 25 without those things, they'll get infected and they'll be fine. And I'm just making a number up just for the sake of conversation, right? Sure. But there's always going to be that one that ends up getting really, really sick regardless, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important that we distinguish, um, you know, uh, at least try to nuance that conversation a little bit, right? But I think that, the, like I said, I think the main takeaway is just like, don't assume that you're, that you're good. Um, because even if you are good, it's not just about you. Yeah. So do you, do you think that it's odd that we're doing this? Or do you think from a public health standpoint, this is, this is like, we're, we're underdoing it, we're overdoing it. Like, how do you, how would you grade the job of, of how we're doing this and how we're taking care of this issue? I mean, that's a very complicated question. Um, Cause there is no one we, you know yeah. what I mean? There's multiple we's out here and that's unfortunate about the United States, but that's no surprise to anybody, right? I think in general, when you see something like this, um, you know, you want to be concerned about the spread of the actual disease itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also want to be concerned about the spread of fear and you also want to be concerned about the indirect consequences of the response to the disease right. and the response to fear, right? right? I think from a public health standpoint, we were hella fucking late to the game mm-hmm. to do any of the, uh, the shutdowns and, you know, these distancing things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a robust science on the effectiveness of isolation and quarantine, um, and at a certain point, once the population has been infected or spread so much, the quarantine efforts and isolation efforts lose their value, right? Mm. And so in those decision time points, it really is ends up coming like a cost-benefit analysis about, you know, what are the ultimate costs? What are the infectious disease um, uh, consequences and what are the non-infectious disease consequences, right? Mm-hmm. I think the U.S. is pretty, really, really slow um, in terms of going to the measures that were necessary to really do a good job of suppressing the infection, right? Everyone's talking about uh, flattening the curve. We waited um uh, a bit too long to to scale up those efforts right um when i say we i think that's varied right there are certain cities and counties and states that were uh more responsive but from the federal level we were hella late to the game we had a person in the white house basically saying this is going to magically disappear in a couple weeks talking about everything's going to be good by easter right mm-hmm. completely uninformed uh just insipid comments right just ridiculousness right i think that um some of the things that have been talked about you know about you know whether the let's not make the cure uh you know, bigger than the problem, right? Um, I think that some of those things are very dismissive and sensitive. Um, but I think that there's, if, if I could assume that there is a larger concern that potentially the, uh, the response to it um, and the economic consequences might end up having a more catastrophic effect than the infectious disease consequences, right? Mm. And that's a tough conversation to have because um, inevitably you're going to be like, oh, well, it's not worth saving lives, right? Like that's what people, it makes you sound insensitive, right? Like, oh, so you're concerned more about the economy than people dying. Um, and there's some, uh, I just read, uh, uh, or skimmed rather, uh, a paper today that was comparing the 1918 flu, right? That killed like millions, right? Like I think 5% of the world's population or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and comparing how different states in the U.S. responded to it. And they basically said like, no, there actually wasn't, maybe weren't, the, the, the places that shut down the fastest actually had a better economy. Like, so the more suppressive 
and aggressive the response to 1918 flu, the better the states did with their economy, right? Mm. And so and a prominent historical example we have suggests like, no, we need to be like, you know, fuck the economy right now. Um, let's just do this aggressive thing and then we can go back to the economy later, right? right. Um, but I think that that's, um, you know, I think it's a both end, honestly. Like I have to say that. Like I think that we have to be concerned about the ways in which, for example, um, we know who's disproportionately going to be getting laid off from work. We know who does not have paid sick leave. Uh, we know whose kids are in public schools where they're relying on two meals a day. Uh, we know who are the bus drivers, uh, who are the people stocking the shelves in the grocery stores, who are delivering the food. We know uh, the folks that are undocumented. We know the folks that are working in the food sectors, right, um, that aren't going to have the, the insurance coverage or the benefits they need to make it through this, right? Um, we know the folks that are going to be at the highest risk of eviction when things um, settle a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are those economic and life disruption consequences from the COVID-19 response and then we're going to see the potential long-term population health impacts of malnutrition, of food insecurity, of housing insecurity on the most vulnerable marginalized populations, right? That systematically since the founding of the United States have been low-income in communities of color, right? Mm-hmm. And so as a population health person, um, I am definitely very interested to see um, this time period uh, from a life course epidemiology perspective, right? Um, and seeing if there are actually period effects and cohort effects uh, for what's going on right now, five to 10 to 20 years from now, in terms of population health outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. And I think short of having some of that science, uh, it would be hard to say whether or not the response is going to actually harm more lives than the disease itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that right now, it's best to just understand that we're dealing with crises, people are in crisis mode, there have been some terrible decisions made, there have been a lack of decisions made in a timely capacity, and it's cost lives. Um, and each of those lives, I would like to think that we, we, we want to value those lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, I don't think we should minimize the, the biomedical and the life and death scenario that we're in right now. But I also think that uh, we have to appreciate that every time something like this happens, it's the same populations that are affected the most, right? So what are we doing in response to this that we're setting ourselves up to not have to worry about the significance of the secondary consequences in the future, right? Mm-hmm. How can we come out of this with universal health care? How can we come out of this uh, with greater housing protections, right? How can we come out of this? Instead of proposing to cut SNAP benefits, which the president has done, how can we actually come out of this with a stronger foods, uh, a food security policy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we come out of this with a living wage that's much higher, right? How can we come out of this with guaranteed pay sick leave at a federal level, right? Mm-hmm. These are ways in which we can pe- protect ourselves going forward. So that if there is, and I should say, if when there is another pandemic mm-hmm. like this, that we don't have to be so concerned about the economic consequences because we're protecting ourselves with a greater collectivist, we're all in this together mentality, right? Mm-hmm. We, it's one thing to say we're all in this together when you think I might cough on you and kill you. Um, but when things settle down, are we still all in this together? Do you still have my back when I can't afford food because you're cutting my SNAP benefits, right? Mm-hmm. Come see me in a year from now and I'll let you know what my fridge is looking like. And if you still got my back and we're still in this together then, then we can have a conversation, right? I think the only way we can get to that is if we set ourselves up and use this as an opportunity to actually build a stronger country for everybody, right? So that way, next time we don't have to worry about this trade-off between the economy and people's lives. So I hear you and I agree with you. However, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my tinfoil kooky hat right now and go semi hotel. So <laughs> in my opinion, just from my few years on earth and my little bit of studying that I've done, um, the United States government 
could care less about people. You know, the this is all about protecting corporate, corporate interests at this point in, in time and, you know, the rich protecting themselves. And so what I've seen as far as the numbers on the fatality rates of COVID-19 versus Ebola, SARS, MERS, everything, Spanish flu, everything, everything else has shown all the, all those other things that I have talked about that, that, that I just mentioned were way more fatal than this. And then, so this comes around and what I've seen, I have been tracking this since it popped off in, in China, like my podcast course at SEI, we've been covering, we've been covering Corona since yeah. it happened, like every Monday yeah. and Wednesday, we're, yeah. we're talking about it. We're, we're researching it. Yeah. So it was popping off in China. It was like, Oh, it's just crazy. And then I remember coming in one day, and I showed my students a picture of a grocery store in Italy. I was like, hey, man, look at this. And this was like early in March, like literally probably like March 1st or something. I was like, hey, man, look, in Italy, they clearing out the stores. Like, it's really, this is getting kind of serious. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I didn't see a response. And it, it, but it wasn't only happening in Italy. It was happening in Iran. It was happening in other places. Like you said, Japan, Singapore, it was spreading but not until it hit Italy, not until some other white people, some actual white people got infected or were getting, getting affected by it. Then that's when the United States, in my opinion, that's when I seen them really start to take it seriously. And then when they take it seriously, they're telling everybody to stay home and protect the elderly and, you know, the healthy people, you might be just fine, but the elderly people, they're the ones that are going to suffer the most. And then I had to think to myself, when did America, ever give a fuck about old people. <laughs> I don't, I can't remember any time in history where they really cared for old people. Like they're cutting social security. <laughs> they want to take their pensions. Honestly, they want to get old people out the paint. But now all of a sudden they're telling us that they care about old people and they want mm-hmm. us to protect them. And that's why we need to stay home. And then you hear about all these chairmen of the boards and all these CEOs and all these people stepping down. You hear about, you know, Jeff Bezos selling 3.4 billion shares of stock in Amazon, you know, weeks before everything tanked. You hear about all these conspiracy theories and all that type of stuff. And so I would I would lean towards being cynical and pessimistic as opposed to optimistic when it comes to this country and doing the right thing for the people. Yeah. Now, with all that being said, how much of that do you buy or do, how much of that resonates with you or where what holes in my story can you help me? to build a more glass half or glass half full. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, this is tough, right? So I always describe myself as a cynical idealist, right? Okay. I can imagine a better place, a better world. Right. But I'm not going to pretend, I'm not going to pretend we're living in it. Right, right. right. That's just my baseline. Right. Like I put the critical lens on everything and I do. Right. Um, so for me, it's, um, I'm probably not the best person. I just was uh, on another um, uh, meeting the other day, a couple of days ago, um, and I was, had a similar conversations. Like for me, it's like people always talk about hope, right? Like I don't really find any value, um, in hope. Hope is a pacifier. Um, hope is like this magical thing. Hope is like imaginary, right? I think imagination is actually very real in itself, right? And I can imagine a better world, but we're not living in that world right now, right? The United States is not, uh, an element of that world right now. In fact, we might've created it so that that world can't even exist for a lot of folks, right? Cause it doesn't exist for a lot of folks and it hasn't existed for a lot of folks, um, so I think in the context of COVID-19, I think the reality is that like, 
yo, like all the things that you said, uh, a lot of things that you said, like we don't have, you, the United States is built on literally spatial dispossession, exploitation of unpaid labor, right? Um, it's never been about people. Right. It's been about products and profit, period. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that you can definitely try to put a silver lining on it and, and say whatever you want about um, in air quotes, this idea of progress and how things have changed, right? I think the reality is that we're still, uh, the United States is still very much a rugged individualist, pull yourself up from your bootstraps type of uh, environment, right? Uh, we have no collective social ethic, right? We don't have that. Um, every time we try to do that through policy, so through like universal childcare for child development programs, um, universal healthcare, um, just like uh, equal pay for women, um, uh, marriage rights for same-sex couples like anytime that we actually try to say hey we're all in this together we all deserve the same opportunities in life every time that we've tried to do that we've had to fight for it and people have had to get hosed down and die in the streets for it right mm -hmm. and so for for me what COVID is exposing right now is that that's what that's the world we're living in uh, to pretend that otherwise is it's foolish man it's, it's a waste of time you know I'm not going to spend my time pretending that we live in this this world right we don't we have to fight for uh, the world that we want to see, right? We have to be able to imagine the world we want to see and we got to fight for that. And so for me, it's a matter of COVID-19 coming in and, and just depleting the older population. That's not a coincidence. That's by design. We left them out. They're vulnerable by the deliberate policy uh, decisions, regardless of what we say politics-wise, right? Because we all want to get voted, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people always want to get voted for. We all, they all want to get voted in the office. So we'll say these things that we care about the youth. We care about the old people. We care about the blue-collar working class. But they say all these things to sell themselves to get what they want, which is positions of power influence so they can get profit. Right. Um, and so for me, it's one of those things where that is, that is the United States. There are other versions and narratives of that that matter in our daily lives. You know, that's not the entirety of the way I see the world, right? My life is beautiful. I love my life. Um, but the, in the greater scheme of things, these are the larger political, social, economic context that the United States is founded upon, right? It created the reason why we can have folks that are going to be dying so much from this um it's how some communities are going to be affected more so than others right um communities of color low-income communities older populations right because we have decided as a country collectively that the interest of the elite and particularly the cis straight white able-bodied man is going to take uh reign over any other interests uh all these other interests are going to be subordinated right they're going to be relegated as kind of like you know if we get time then maybe we can do that right if we don't continue to protest, resist, and, and advance uh, a better narrative, we're not going to get into this imagined world that we can have where it's more equitable, right? And so for me, I think that your take on it is very similar to mine. Uh, like I have, um, I have no doubt that we're in a situation where we're having this conversation. It's because of the years and years and centuries of neglect um, and, and lack of attention um, and deliberate and by design, honestly, it's all of it's been by design yeah. um, to create a context in the world where certain folks are going to come out okay and maybe even come out better at the expense of somebody else, right? right. That's nothing new. That's just another chapter in the American story, right? right. Um, and so for me, it's like, like I said, like I can imagine a better world, but we're not living in it. We have to make it. You know, James Baldwin talks about this, right? We've made the world that we're living in and we'll have to make it over again. Mm -hmm. um, like that's where we're at right now, right? We have to make it over again, right? And we don't need to make it in the way that a certain person wants to make it right. <laughs> like that's, that's not going to get us there. Yeah. That's a fact. Well, that's, it's good to know that, you know, I'm resonating and we're, we're resonating together. And because <clears throat> what I'm, what I'm seeing, because like I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and a lot of my business has to do with face-to-face, -face, you know, meetings and 
and I haven't developed a uh, an online curriculum for my for my podcast teaching, and so uh, or just other things that I do, like I'm you know, partnering with other, you know, with the county or with nonprofit organizations or for-profit corporations, just doing um, content for them. And so everything is I've, I've done is, is in person. So right now, everything that I've done is, is on it. Everything that I've been doing is on a halt. Um, I'm, I'm missing out on, you know, thousands of dollars in, in contracts right now. So <clears throat> at this point in time, um, I'm doing Postmates to keep some money coming in. And I've been doing it for two weeks now and it's it's crazy because for one i mean if you're out there at any point in time in the day it's it's spooky like there's nobody on mm-hmm. the road. and then at night it gets really spooky because it's just like empty but then you do see a few cars and a few people but then you you, you see people and every person you see has a mask on and it just looks weird it's like i'm walking through assassin's creed right now you know what i mean <laughs> and so and so like on the cake yeah, bro. So like literally the last two days, cause I go out and I, I start around like four, I typically get off the road like nine. And so the last two days, bro, like I'm noticing people are more scared of each other. When you was talking about like, Hey, we're all in this together. Like we should, that should be the notion of, Hey, we're all in this together. Everybody's going through this. Everybody's hurting. You know, we're just trying to make it through. We're trying to quarantine and be safe. But it's like, you know, normally I go up and hand them their food or whatever. But now it's to the point where, like, don't nobody want to be handed <laughs> anything. Yeah, you know? yeah. And they're just, just like, oh, no, just just leave it there. Just dude. leave it. I'll come get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I get it, you know. But at first I was like, dang, bro, that's kind of messed up. Like, I'm, just, I'm, I'm good. But then it's like everybody's on edge right now. Yeah. And everybody believes. And even though this people are dying and people are being affected. And I know people as people in my family, like I know people that have been affected, people that have passed from it. Um, but even though I know that people are dying and it is deadly, like it's almost like I don't want to give in to the fear, yeah. but then you do have to be safe. But it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to be fearful. Or you're just going to be safe and you know, fuck everybody's feelings you know what i mean like i'm gonna yeah. treat you like you're a pariah or something like that so yeah. but it's but it's like i'm seeing like literal like fear in people's eyes like people are scared not just because i'm a black man just because of i'm a person mm-hmm. and that is weird i've seen the change i've seen the shift in people's behavior man and i feel like it's just going to increase so yeah. what are some things like i know we can't rely on hope but like what can we do to mitigate the fear that's like being because we're we're just inundated with the media mentions and everything on the news is more and more death. How can we how can we yeah. get away from that fear, bro? Yeah, I mean that's tough. I think that that's that's certainly something that I think folks are gonna have to figure out and answer for themselves, right? I know that like um, you know, one of the concerns I've had at the beginning with this um was, you know, what's what are we gonna be looking at in terms of population health like five years from now, a year from now, in terms of the long-term consequences, mm-hmm. not only of the disease itself, but the response to it, right? Back to this whole thing about unemployment, in um, utero exposure to stress uh, amongst pregnant women right now, right? Those types of consequences, right? Life course things. Um, but also I was concerned about, you know, it's, it's been the case in the US history is that every time we have um, an infection, we have racism flaring up, right? Um, it's always there. Um, the racism is always there, right? This is no surprise to anybody that's been like remotely awake ever in the United States. Um, but, you know, we saw a lot of that immediately, particularly with uh, the Asian community. And it's, you know, of course it was framed as um, 
really Chinese and Chinese American, right? But I think that most folks, if they just see an Asian person, they assume they're Chinese, right? Because that's what racism does, right? Um, every Latino person is like Mexican because people just, they're, you know, that's just the way it is, right? Mm-hmm. And so you saw that flaring up. There's been like dozens of news stories reporting uh, increases in hate crimes and stuff like that, anti-Asian sentiment and stuff like that. I think that it's also going to be transferred over to all people of color. Um, it was already bad enough where we, we had white folks calling the cops on folks for like drinking water, um, playing video games in their living room, you know, things of the various things, right? There's a whole running list that people have seen all over social media, things you cannot do um, if you're a black and brown America, right? right? I think that when we talk about infectious diseases, what we're talking about is exacerbating fear and we project that fear onto the other. This is a basic sociological, psychological process, right? We cannot see ourselves as the cause of fear. We have to create the other to project our fear onto. This is what danger looks like, right? Mm -hmm. So even if there's a white person out there that's infected or somebody who's in their family is white and they're infected, they're going to be more likely to have a fearful response to anybody that does not look like them when they're out in public, even though they know full well that they could be infected or somebody they know in their own family is already infected, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, I wouldn't be too surprised if the responses that everybody's seeing, not just um, the Asian population, um, that all people of color are probably getting some type of heightened sense of fear around them, right? And if this carries over afterwards, right? Because this is not like people keep on talking about this peak, right? Like it's going to drop off and magically disappear. That's not what's going to happen with this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps there might be a seasonal thing, which I'm not really quite sure. I've seen that evidence suggest that's going to be true or not. Um, my sense is that it could be an endemic thing that flares up. I don't know what the way to see the models and the evidence on this, right? But this isn't going to go away. If we have a another thing like this, the fear is going to kick back in. And I think if you end up having segments of fear, heightened fear and a drop in fear, you're going to end up having a baseline increase in fear projected for the entire population. And that fear projection is going to basically amplify the baseline, uh, the baseline fear that we already have of people of color, right? Mm. And so I think it could actually make policing um, and all these interactions that people of color have with police even worse, right? Mm. Um, particularly if we get into the space of finding folks for not wearing a mask in public um, for doing certain, not standing six feet away, you know, those types of things. I don't, I have no doubt that the, the litigation is going to exponentiate the fear, the calls about threats and security. Those are all going to be transferred over into this, this new infectious disease world, this racialized infectious disease world that we might be stepping into, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it would only make sense. This is the way that, you know, things have worked historically. Um, and certain and infectious disease is going to heighten people's fear and discomfort. Um, we might end up starting policing the sick, right, in ways in which we um, we haven't seen in quite some time, right? And so for me, I teach a public health law and policy class, and we talk about this idea of police powers, um, public health police powers, right? Basically, like, state powers that are reserved for states to exercise to regulate the public health within their borders, right? And there are certain things we can do in quarantine, isolation, all these things are our public health police powers, right? Um, the extent to which we actually we use actual police to enforce public health police powers, I think that's where we're going to end up seeing at some point with this, if we don't somehow figure out a way for folks to um, work their ways through their own fear, right? And so I think that individually, um, each person has to figure that out, but our messaging is not helping, right? Um, a president that's going to keep on calling us the Chinese virus for so long, that's not helping anybody, right? Um, and so I think that in some level for each of us, you know, and me and my daily life, I agree with you. Like I go out, I uh, went to the grocery store the night before last. I went at night. I went like an hour before it closed because you got to go early in the morning. Um, but some stores are reserving the early morning hours for the folks that are in older population to keep the store uh, safer for them. Mm-hmm. I went late at night um, and it was mostly empty, right? But there were a few folks in the store, hardly anybody was wearing a mask. Um, and the person who was ringing up the groceries wasn't wearing a mask, right? And so for me, it's just like, well, 
there's a reason to to be concerned for sure mm-hmm. but i haven't found myself having a reason to be fearful right mm-hmm. i think you have to have the the patience and the emotional maturity to assess and appraise what's going on immediately um to be able to figure out what the actual risks are right and i think it's a hard thing to do in the time of of, of large-scale panic and concern right for me i'm very concerned right um but i, I want to be careful that i'm, I'm in a uh, in a mind frame where I don't allow myself to be usurped by that fear. Cause that's not going to be helpful for anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bro. I mean, it's, and that's, that's where I'm at. Like I've been generally unfearful. And now that I'm seeing the virus work its way through society in a different way, as opposed to like, like I said earlier, how it's like, I was thinking like, bro, if I get the, if I get Corona, I want that Rudy Gobert Corona. I want that Idris Elba. <laughs> I want the Tom Hanks one. Like I want the, I want the celebrity Corona cause they give all me, fine. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Give me that it's, four day, that four day Corona. Exactly, bro. And so now I'm seeing, all right, now that there's this like two week, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. I can't walk. I'm sick. Yeah. You know, that version. I'm like, all right, now I actually have to be concerned. I actually have mm-hmm. to take this serious because I do see some real cases of people like dying that are young and really going through it. But I, I still generally am like not overly fearful. But like I said, I just, I'm just seeing a difference in other people's behavior yep. and just difference in everyday interactions. Like, Oh man, it's really, it's really changing. People are really starting to be overcome with fear. But um, yeah, man, I mean, that's, that's just going to be the new normal and we're just all going to have to, like you said, individually work that out and just, yeah, we got to. I mean, you see, you know, something like like being in public health, you see a lot of this, right? And and, and I don't, I'm just going to be upfront and be blunt about this. Like, I don't really give a shit about a lot of public health in terms of like health promotion. And, and um, you know, public health has been premised on individualism, right? Because the United States is premised on individualism, right? Like we blame people for their own sickness, right? Uh, we see someone with like diabetes and be like, you need to eat better. And then we ignore social, political, con- economic context, right? Well, why aren't people eating better, right? You need to get physical activity. Well, why aren't people getting physical activity, right? It's predictable and it's structured in, in, in terms of our larger inequality, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, I think that I'm not a fan of that version of public health, right? That solves no problems. That basically misplaces the, the attention on the individuals when we look, we need to be looking at the structure of society that expose or create risk or opportunities for individuals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for populations rather, right? And so I think that for me, what I've been seeing a lot of is folks that, and it probably was like business interests too, right? So for example, you can go online right now and get a whole bunch of home physical activity routines from all the gyms that, gyms that have been closed down, right? Well, it's not altruism. They're not really out here caring about the public necessarily. They're out here because, you know, they can do this thing and still have some type of revenue coming if they're charging, right? There are some free ones out there. Um, similar things where folks will have a webinar or a meeting about how we can do self-care and meditate and, and yoga, right? All these things, they matter, right? And that's what for individuals to determine whether or not that's going to help them process things, reduce their stress, right? Those are all valuable things, right? Um, so I wouldn't say that we shouldn't do these things. I think each person has to figure out what works for them. Um, my only concern is, is that that creates a scenario where it's like how you, how you do throughout this entire situation is up to what you do. Yeah. And that's utterly fucking bullshit. Like how we come out of this has very little to do with, with what we do individually during this time, right? Whether or not we watch these exercise routines, whether or not we do fucking yoga, whether or not we're like watching cooking shows and like none of that shit is irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. How we fare as a community, as a population is not going to be determined by what we do as individuals right now. Mm-hmm. It's going to be determined by what we do as a community, as a country, 
right now, right? And so I, I hate this very much focus on yourself, stay at home, exercise, and you'll make it through this. No, uh, you can do those things. Definitely do them, but that's not going to predict whether or not you're going to be good or not necessarily, right? Mm. There's a bigger arc here. There's a bigger frame that we need to kind of pan out and look at that, right? And so for me, that's where you see the conversations going on right now that I feel like I'm more concerned about, right? Well, what are we going to do about people's rents? What are we going to do about childcare? What are we going to do about, you know, um, sick leave, unemployment, right? What are we going to do when things maybe recover a little bit um, in terms of making sure folks have what they need uh, to, get, uh, to get back to where they were, right? And how can we prevent this from happening in the future? I think all this time, let's talk about like, you know, making individuals feel better during this time. It's important. Like we got to do self-care and we got to be motivated and we got to take care of ourselves. I do not discount that. But if that's the only message that we're going to put out there, Yo, man, we're setting ourselves up for another another version of this, right, man? Call it COVID-20. Call it COVID-21. Call it COVID-22. What are we doing to make sure that this is the last time we have a COVID-19, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the conversation I want to hear more of. Have you heard it? From who have you heard it? And and how are they, like, what are they saying? And if you haven't heard it, what what would you say? Like, if you was in a White House, man, and, and you had your way and you was able to, like, pull the, pull the strings and, like, make the calls, yeah. what, what direction would you go and how would you go about it? I mean, that's, that's a very broad question, man. I thank you for, for making me president of the United States. No doubt, man. Of America. Yeah, um, yeah so I think that there have been some conversations. Um, there's a lot of uh, – um, I'm on a couple of listservs and there's a lot of back and forth we, that is at least putting the conversation into the domain of social inequality, right? Um, so talking about some of the reasons why like communities of color or low income or undocumented populations or the prison population might be most severely affected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I really shouldn't even say might be. Um, then more than likely when the data comes out, we're gonna see that white people with money are more likely to get an, a ventilator than poor people without uh, people of color without money, right? That's what's gonna, that, then we're gonna see that. I'm gonna predict that right now. Um, <laughs> So, because that's that just makes sense, right? We've had the same variables and the same equation for 400 years, right? If you put it in, you're going to get the same thing out. We haven't fundamentally changed our equation, right? So, we're going to see the same types of outputs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think that there are some folks that are putting this out there. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of the New York Times, The Atlantic, and various uh, media outlets that are trying to frame it from an equity social justice lens. In terms of the policy things, I think that we've you know we've seen that 2.2 trillion thing, right? For context. Um, Canada's paying people $2,000 a month indefinitely. Mm. So not just a one-time $1,200 thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're in America. Like, what, what proportion of household expenses can be covered by $1,200 anywhere in the United States of America, right? right. This is like the same country that we have a poverty, poverty rate that's kind of flat. It just assumes that the same amount of money is the same amount of things everywhere in the United States. It's just fundamentally, it's not true, right? Mm-hmm. Canada is doing $2,000, something like $2,000 a month until a certain amount of time. Um, England is doing like 75 or 80% of people's salaries. Um, Sweden, Denmark, or not Sweden, uh, Denmark, and a couple other countries are doing something around the same thing, right? So there's other places that are doing things on a policy level that are more protective. Um, so the United States doing $1,200 as a one-time thing, um, it's a mockery, right? That's not really going to – it's just better than nothing, but like that's, that's crims, right? This is the pacification, right? This is to keep them uh, – keep folks quiet for a little bit, right? Or the buy time. Um, it could be strategic, right? Um, so for me, I think that I would really revisit the conversations about longer-term structural change, right? I would be thinking about um, universal health care, guaranteed paid sick leave from the federal policy level, right? Right now, basically, states or um, local jurisdictions and companies are up to their own uh, their, their own decision-making on these things, right? Um, 
guaranteed paid sick leave, um, paid caregiver leave, whether it's for a sick loved one, a child, a partner, like whatever it is, right? Basically having a more um, social collectivist mentality to our national policy, right? Um, those are the things that I would be doing right now, right? And looking for right now. And there is, I've seen enough, you know, messages and news stories where I'm, I'm getting a sense there is some traction for this, right? Uh, as an immediate response to the crisis right now. And so my hope and expectation is that these conversations will inform, um, you know, the policy debates because we're in an election year, right? So hopefully it'll inform the policy debates and we can get some of these decisions actually a part of national public policy going forward, right? That's a challenge though. This is a robustly uh, individualist, capitalist, uh, unregulated neoliberal uh, market country that we're living in, right? A lot of the things that would actually uh, improve people's lives outside of the context of COVID, but particularly to make sure that a, a COVID uh, does not occur again and affect the same populations as severely again. Um, a lot of those things that we would need to do would end up having to do a more socialist policy response, right? Um, not a, a socialist-like economy, right? But social policy that is socialist, right? So it's still capitalist, right? Um, so the idea is a democratic socialism, right? Things like that, right? That, of that nature. Um, so for me, I think that, yeah, if I was president, I'd be listening to these policy arguments, right? Um, because this is how we can be a better us, a better U.S., right, baseline. And if we're a better us from the very baseline, when we have things like this happen, we're already better off. And we can direct our attention um, accordingly from there, right? But if we keep on having to basically fill in potholes that have been there for 400 years before we can start building, like, it's just, it's a, it's a shitty way to go about doing things. It's a logical, defies science, it defies logic. Um, and so for me, like, that's what I would probably want to have on the agenda, right? For sure. Uh, but yeah. Man. Got a lot of work to do, and uh, but it's not like you said, it's not on us, it's on them. And who knows, who knows, man? But let's at least stay optimistic for our own mental health, right? Yeah, I think it's important. Everyone's got to find that thing to you know to have some perspective on it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the balanced perspective, rather. I think that you know, for me, it's very real on, on many, many fronts, right? Everybody in my immediate family is essential and essentially at high risk, right? There's going to be consequences to that for, for myself, for, for everybody else out there, I imagine, too. Um, for me, the position that I'm in is about how can I lend my experience, my perspective, my training, my expertise, uh, so um, in air quotes, right? <laughs> how, can I, how can I lend that to the conversation, the dialogues? And I think personally for me, it's one of the things that helps me is, 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 is the writing, you know what I mean? For sure. Um, Got to do that. I think that, you know, uh, Audrey Lord says, you know, like, you know, poetry is not a luxury. Um, and I think that in a time like this, we got to understand that, you know, that the best way forward um, through this and then afterwards is that we got to understand that, you know, um, love, solidarity and resistance, they have to be the same thing. Mm. Simultaneous acts, right? That's the only way we're going to make it through this um, and, and, and make it through it better, right? And I think that for me, one of the ways that I can remind myself of that is um, through writing. So it's important. It's a fact, bro. Speaking of that, bro, do you have that queued up? You got the, the poem in front of you, bro? Because if you have it, I would love to have you share it if that's something. I do not have it queued up. <laughs> um, I, I have had another request to, to record it um, for a music artist radio station down in New Orleans Word. and send that. Um, I haven't done it yet, though. I used to be in the, in the, in the hip-hop mixtape thing for a while, but it's been like a, 
been like a I decade. Tell, man. I, I could tell by the way you was writing. I was like, but he got some punchlines, bro. Like I can hear this over like a little. Yeah. So like I, uh, I used to do, yeah, I used to do a lot of production, did my own beats, music and everything. And then it's spoken word, right? So I wrote this as a spoken word piece, but, uh, um, I, I don't even know if I like my mics are working anymore. I gotta find my mics and all my adapters and all that stuff like that to try to record it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, so so so, what are you asking? You asking if you want me to to read this? Yeah, if if I know this is like that's that's a lot. It might be a tall task, but you know, it's it's up to you, bro. But if not, if it's something where you want to really prepare, I understand that. I used to be an artist, like I rapped, I did be, I know all of that. So it's like, just just asking, you know what I mean? If not, yeah, let me see. Um, I might be able to to do that right quick unrehearsed unpolished um it's powerful man i was just like damn that's hard and i I wanted to like read little excerpts and then whatever but then i was like man i don't want to read somebody else's work like this is a this is a piece of art bro like i don't want to i don't yeah touch it like that right so i mean i think i I think i can probably do this um we'll see hopefully i'll I'll try it i'll try it um i definitely uh i mean i read it you know, and I have it written to be delivered. Like I said, it's performative, right? But uh, I'm not gonna do a full out performance, performative vibe right now, though. Worries. That would that would take some rehearsing. For sure. Um, but and yeah, let me go so, ahead. And this is and then like I'm I can edit all of this. So if it if it doesn't yeah. come out to your liking, I could obviously I edit it out. But you know. Yeah, cool. I'll go ahead and I'll give it. A, I'll give it a go though. Uh, let me just pull this up. Um. Yeah. All right. So uh, hope if I make us through this with in one go that'd be good all right so this is a so for context right so uh i don't know if you saw the original post on this so i posted this on march 25th 2020 which is 55 years after uh, the 55th year, uh, anniversary of the march from selma uh to montgomery right and so the selma march obviously there there are a bunch of attempts right but they finally arrived in montgomery on um you know on, on march 25th so basically you know March 25th this year was 55th year anniversary. And I think that for me, as a public health professor, um, African-American man that's in this position that I'm in, I was thinking about the significance of COVID-19 and its longer term uh, consequences on social, political, economic opportunity, particularly because it's a um, it's an election year mm-hmm. and it's a census count year, right? Mm. And so census counts are critical in terms of determining political representation and districting allocation of funds, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it's an election year, right? And so the ways in which COVID-19 might disrupt already institutional forms of, of oppression, right? Uh, in terms of voter suppression and in terms of census undercounts, systematic census undercounts that affect uh, low-income communities, communities of color and undocumented and indigenous communities, right? So I think that for me, that's what I was thinking about. And so when COVID-19 started popping off and getting real and there was all this talk about the response in terms of the medical things, I was concerned about that for obvious reasons, but my mind immediately went to, um, James Baldwin, the fire next time. Um, that's where my mind went immediately. Cause I was like, yo, like this is going to be real right now, but like the last 55 years, because the footing ranks acts have been significant, right? What's the next 55 years going to be like if we are in a situation now where this COVID-19 can disrupt uh, fundamentally um, the next 10 years through census miscounts and undercounts, right? But then also throw off the election in the political election year, right? What does that mean going forward on a structural level, right? And so that's kind of where my mind went. Um, so that was a launching pad into this piece in turn uh, when I started writing it. So, and I dropped it down. I think I probably wrote it in like, I don't know, eight to 10 hours or something like that. Mm. Um, 
just let it, you know, let it go. And then I did an annotated version because I felt like I was dropping things in there and referring and thinking about things that weren't super obvious. Um, I think a lot of folks could follow it and, and read into it, I think, but I went ahead and annotated it. So if you don't have the annotated version, I can send it to you. Man. Anyway. Hey, it, I caught it. I was catching it. And it, yeah. it's, it's so heavy. It was just like, damn, I'm really reading. This ain't poetry. Like this is, you know, this is, this is beyond poetry. This is just like, I can't even put words to it, bro. It was, to me, it was just, it was art. And yeah, yeah. Um, it was powerful and it was hitting me in so many ways. And it was one of those things I, I kept re- reading it in certain lines and just like unpacking. I'm like, yo, this is deep. I can't wait to, to talk to this brother and hear him, you know, talk about yeah. it. Let me see if I can get into that. Uh, well, thing. I appreciate that. Um, you never know. It's always a risk, man. Like, um, especially cause like, I don't really write and perform hardly at all anymore. Right. Like I, I mess around every now and then and make a beat or two here and there. And I write a few bars here and there, but writing a, a full like piece, like I just don't do that uh, much anymore, right? I have been more recently, but I think that you know, I felt like it was a risk, especially dropping it out there and sharing it with folks, right? Because you never really know, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, I do that as a research. I, I send papers out for publication, and reviewers will say some ignorant shit, like, "No, this is weak. <laughs> Take that back where it can." You know, like, right. so, like it's you know, it, it's ideas, right? Ideas are very sensitive things. Right. Um, anyway, so I, I'll go ahead and go ahead and give this a read. Uh, hopefully, I can make it through here one time. Let's go. All right. So this is mask uh, exposed. Can covering coughs cover the cost of our American production? Crises manufactured in the mouths of demigods. Idiosyncratic idiocies adorned in red ties defending insipid claims of intelligence, suppressing science, ignoring centuries of proof embodied in the bones and lungs of our lost. America has never been asymptomatic. Testing for pathogens, finding ourselves in the streaks of Western blots unapologetically contaminated. Wiping doorknobs we wouldn't turn for a neighbor who doesn't speak our language. Searching for solvents to absolve our apologies as the world becomes a 5G autoclave. Covered in breaking coverage of tolls, counting the uncovered, the unhoused, the unfreed, the uninsured, the undocumented. Uncovering the umbilical cord of infection. How do you quarantine racism? How do you flatten the curve of capitalism? Patience, hope. Hope is an accelerant and an arson of indifference, and we are not the resistance. We are the remakers. We must burn their corneas, corner their consciousness as wolves conditioned on the flesh of lives, tear their tongues for origami appetizers on a glass tabletop of truth, organized to shatter, to cut, to dislodge patience from the bends of our bones and prayer from our cracking fingers because God is a lobbyist. The fire is here and no, our ride is not arriving. It has been consumed by the flames of an arc fashioned from our sweat, funded by the ties and taxes of a hopeful populace that, that depletes toilet paper and leaves matches fully stopped. Washing virally exploited hands with antibacterial soap, massaging monetized fear into palms, dying to be raised as fist, unpaid, sick, now leave. A drunken reality exposed by social distance, rubbing sanitizer on the stilled inequality. Let's put a mask on it, call it COVID, or call it Chinese, or call it whatever the fuck we want as long as we don't dare dream to call it enough. At what point exactly does it become what it is? When an actual pandemic poses no threat to dreams of going viral, when a president lays bare our true pathology in an ode to Ivan Drago because what's a death to a dollar, a problem to a patent when there's a promise of a check? As my brothers build and operate the warehouses, my father trucks the products, my mother stocks the shelves, my partner treats the sick. As our loved ones' skin scorched to dust in sterilized boxes, should we wade through the world we made, jealous of the material melting away inside? 
or purchase stock in natural gas. I'll wait six feet away from freedom. Let's go! Let's go! Bro, that was fire, bro. <laughs> I'll hey, wait. I gave it a shot. Yeah, that's fire, bro. My guy's not a God is a lobbyist, man. Man, you was talking that talk, bro. <laughs> hey, I'm trying, man. I'm out here. I'm writing bars. Um yeah. yeah, I'll take it as a first read, man. It's it's tough, especially sitting down. Usually like when you you want to be standing up right for the lungs. But bro, tone, you, you know what I mean? You understand like if you if you just had like a high quality video, high quality camera, bro, and you spit that and you put that on any social, bro, that's going off like that. To, in my opinion, it should go off like that. But you hey. just did everything, bro. The whole from start to finish, man. Appreciate it. Definitely. Hey, man, if you can help make that happen, I'm down for it. I think that, uh, like I said, yeah, I put it on, I put it on Facebook. And then uh, on this public health is serve. Um, like I said, like uh, this radio station down in New Orleans wants me to record it. So, uh, but yeah, video, I think that the performance part of it would be good, but I got to get some time and um, to do that. I got to check, like I said, I got to check my equipment, man. Like I haven't actually, I have a bag in a, in a plastic box of just recording stuff that I got to make sure it still works and dust it off and all that. But um, I'm down for that, man. I'm definitely like, hey, if you're trying to, trying to make that happen with me, we can do that. Yeah, bro. We can, we can make something happen, bro. That's Man, that's hard. That's hard, bro. I wanted to, man. There was, there were so many things, and you had you had mentioned it earlier in this conversation, and it jumped out to me in the poem when you said, "Hope is is an accelerant in an arson of indifference." Break that down. Break that down, bro. Make that live. Yeah, man. So I think that, and this is like, and this is this is just me, you know, like for real, like you talk to various folks that have been in various organizing social justice movements, right? Um, our generation, uh, our previous generations, right? Especially communities of color, um, especially folks um, in the LGBT community. I think that, and then definitely folks in terms of like, you know, um, work around uh, women's rights and stuff, right? So I think that we can talk about hope. And I think there's this idea that hope is what, you know, keeps us alive, right? We gotta be more hopeful that it will energize us, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's an element to that, right? I just think that's the wrong word to use because I think that historically what we've been, for me in my mind, I should put this in the context, right? I, I grew up on the church, uh, um, uh, Black Baptist Church and AME Church and then a mostly white Methodist church. Um, and for me, hope and uncritical hope particularly is essentially saying that some magical figure from the future is going to pop out of the clouds and make things better. And that's fucking bullshit. You know what I mean? Like we are going to make things better. Right. So hope is passive. Hope ain't doing shit for me right now. Right. right. It needs to be an active critical hope. Right. And for me, that's why I for, for prefer to use the idea of imagination that we need to be able to imagine the future. Right. Cause if we can imagine it, then we can go make that happen. Yeah. Hope doesn't necessarily link it up to imagination, you know what I mean? So for me, hope is the way you pacify the crowd. You pacify folks, right? You tell people to pray on it. My mm-hmm. thoughts and prayers are with you. We don't need thoughts and prayers, God damn it. We need boots on the ground. We need action. We need, we need advocacy. We need these things, right? Hope and thoughts and prayers are not going to get this done. It's never going to – it never got it done, right? Regardless of whether or not the civil rights movement, um, particularly for, for the black community, was led by folks um, that were pastors and ministers and all that stuff, right? At least at the forefront of the, in the public, right? Like, that might have been true, but it wasn't the praying away of things and the laying of hands inside the chapel that got shit done. Yeah. Um, so for me, hope has to be critical and it has to be connected to action, right? And so for me, um, if we're not cautious with that and we just like pass it like, oh, like, you know, hope, you know, like that's just putting fuel on the fire. 
uh, the fire has been lit for centuries, right? Um, and hope has done nothing to put those flames out. So we need something different. That's a fact. It's like, you know, the classic argument, do you just need faith? And then there's like faith without works is dead. But it's like, you got to have both. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. You got to have both. And then there was, man, another part that really stuck out to me. I was like, oh, this this is a bar right here. He's, you said, washing virally exploited hands with antibacterial soap, massaging monetized fears into palms, dying to be raised as fists. That's hard, bro. That is hard. Like, what 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 was what were you going through at the time, bro? Like, <laughs> who pissed you off, bro? Like, you was somebody somebody lit a fire into you, bro. They'd be writing some some stuff like that. Man, I had feelings. Okay. I had some feelings. Yeah, um, we had a conversation. I'm like, bro, this nigga talked to somebody, bro. He was just like, hey, man, nah, nah. <laughs> no, nah, I can't talk to nobody right now, man. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, so I think that it was a few things, right? So I think that, I mean, for me, like, you know, I'm in a public health world, social epi, so I'm thinking about these things all day, every day, right? That's what I'm trained and paid to do, right? Yeah. Uh, it's also just like a reflection of my own life and the conditions that I, I grew up with and under, right? And I think that the, I bring that critical lens from my critical lens from my life experience mm-hmm. and the context that I was brought up in, I bring it to my work. And so my baseline is to be thinking about these things in this capacity. Um, but for that particular part, I think that it was, um, I don't know, there's a part of element there right, where it's like, you know, like the lack of understanding baseline, the lack of concern people have for public health in general, right? Mm-hmm. Where they confuse a virus with something as bacterial, um, right? So like literally just like, just baseline, just uninformed, uh, stupidity i don't want to like call people stupid but in the world of the internet if you can't figure out that something that's antibacterial doesn't do anything with virus you know what i mean like Mm. um and there's an element there where if you just wash your hands with soap you should be able to lice for the most part any viral things as well right but it's not the antibacterial thing that's doing it right there's there's a different things right um and so for me it's like there's a little bit of that there because of the, the, the failure of public health to really communicate these things historically to the public in a way that's meaningful right um, but then also the idea of virally exploited hands, right? So what we seem to not really care about or pay too much attention to in the United States is where our food comes from. Um, who's growing our food? Who's picking our food? Who are the folks that are going to be the most devastated by what's going on right now? Because we have this public charge thing that just the Supreme Court allowed to go forward back in February, right? So this idea that folks that are coming in um, – and working in the U.S. and paying taxes into our systems, we're spending their money because they're working, paying taxes, and we're spending their money for ourselves. But they can't benefit from healthcare um, and public uh, benefits like food stamps and housing vouchers, right? Because of this public charge rule, right? So I think people don't understand who's growing their food. What are you eating right now? When you go to the grocery store right now and clear off an entire fucking shelf of vegetables, where did that come from? Whose hands grew that so you can put it in your mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, those are the virally exploited hands because they're literally going to be the reason why the privilege can sustain themselves throughout this. And they're going to be the ones that are left behind explicitly through a series of political um, policies, decisions that were made. Right. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was really where that, where that was coming from for that particular element of that piece. Um, as people need to understand um, that they're, they're, we cannot get through any of this if we don't appreciate those that are enabling us to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and how are we going to leave them out of this entire equation? Right. So that whole cares act, um, I went through, that's going to be paying folks $1,200. Well, that's not going to go to the folks that are growing our food. Mm-hmm. So who the fuck are we as Americans to be eating food right now that was grown by these hands, right? Yeah. And that's the viral exploitation, right? Mm-hmm. That's the virus. Um, so for me, yeah. And then obviously the, the whole thing about 
dying to be raised as fists, right? The, the fact that there's a lot of employees out there that don't allow unions, right? I have two family members um, that work for an employer that does not allow unions, right? Um, and they do not necessarily guarantee uh, paid sick leave, right? And so what does that mean that you got people out here dying um, that are deemed essential workers, but they can't unionize and demand uh, paid benefits and, and equitable pay and all those things, right? And a minimum wage, uh, increase of minimum wage or a living wage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's about directing attention towards the underlying roots of why this is going to be so bad for so many people, right? And it's about um, trying to connect the dots. Man, that's dope, bro. That's heavy, man. Um, two more things. I, I don't want to hold you too long. I know you got a little man um, probably about to wake up from his nap. Um, going back to medically speaking things, um, according to USA Today, there are eight strains of coronavirus that are circling the world. So what does that mean? Like, this is, is this normal for a relatively new virus to have eight strains? And how does the presence of eight strains impact the development of a vaccine? Great question. Um, yeah, so I mean, like anything that's uh, viral mutates pretty fast. RNA viruses are particularly known to, to, to mutate really, really fast. Um, so anything that's out there as a, as a virus in the viral world, there's multiple strains out there. Um, that's a given, right? If it, if it exists, it exists in multiple forms. Um, you can almost guarantee that, right? Um, in terms of uh, what that means, in terms of response, uh, generally the same thing it would mean for like a seasonal flu vaccine, really. Um, not to oversimplify it, but basically when you get a flu vaccine, it's not like one strain that's in there, right? They do a mathematical modeling approach that's like really like a crapshoot, really. Um, and you end up getting a vaccine that's like four or five strains that have been attenuated, right? Um, so attenuated basically means that they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, um, they're whole virus, but they're not active, right? So they can't infect you. So this whole thing about, oh, yeah, you get the flu from the flu vaccine, it's not possible. It's, it's attenuated strains are not alive. Um, but basically, it's not just one strain. It's like four or five. And they usually, try to map, they usually try to predict which flu strains to put in the seasonal flu vaccine based on what's going on the season before in a different hemisphere, right? So what's, what's floating around the world before our flu season gets here? Mm-hmm. And then what is the underlying, what are the historical and underlying strains that have been circulating in our population continuously, right? And so they kind of pick and choose uh, which things are going to put in any seasonal flu vaccine, right? And so if you kind of transpose that into what we have right now with COVID-19, it would suggest something similar. It mutates fast enough where you can't just have a, a monovalent um, uh, vaccine, right? So you're going to have to have multiple versions um, of, the, of the COVID and, and the vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. Whether or not there's going to be, you know, um, different versions to suit the U.S. population, because we're, we're in a global context, right? Um, and people travel. So that, for me, it would suggest that if you're going to develop a vaccine for this, you're going to have to have a multivalent uh, vaccine that incorporates elements from the different strains that are most populous are most uh, prominent uh, throughout the rest of the world, right? So you might have something in there, there that can help protect against the strain that's in, in East Asia, protect against strain that's kind of developing and evolving and mutating in South America, right? So it makes it very complicated and complex, right? Mm-hmm. And so folks are like, oh, we're going to vaccine quick. Like it takes like 12 to 18 months um, to develop a vaccine, right? Because you have to figure out what works uh, figure out how to grow it, scale it up, produce it, um, and you have to make sure it actually works, right? And so you have to have clinical trials. And generally, the rule of thumb is that as long as you need the protection in your population, so if you need it to last the entire season for like the flu, if you need it to last six months, that's how long you have to follow people in the study mm. to make sure that it actually works for six months. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that uh, in terms of developing a, a potential vaccine for this, 
it's definitely going to take a, a lot of smart folks, way smarter than I am, to figure out what to put in it, um, test it out, and get it out to the, uh, the population. And I think this brings it back to the point I made earlier, way back in the conversation about Indonesia, back with H1N1, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of securitization. Um, if we're going to develop this vaccine, and it's going to be effective in the global world, um, it's going to have rely on samples taken from all around the, all around the world samples from countries that might not be able to afford what the United States pharmaceutical companies want to charge for it. Right. Mm. Um, so what does that mean in terms of equity and social justice going forward? Right. Uh, who's going to be able to get access to this vaccine when we develop it. Right. Cause we can't develop an effective one without everybody sharing their specimens. Um, so that's where we're going to be at. We need to make sure we're sharing the benefits um, of whatever vaccine gets developed. Right. Otherwise who are we, you know what I mean? Like what, what does that mean about us as people as human beings if we're not willing to do that? Right. Mm. So it sounds like it'll be tough for some, you know, United States company to to have like, you know, what you were talking about, that that patent, yeah. um, the orphan patent. But then it's like, all right, you got it, but you need to collaborate with like other companies from other countries, yeah. other scientists to really create a product that's going to be conducive to help everybody and not just your people because your people can get this little few strains here, but then when they go over there, you're yeah. missing like four or five strains that are present that could be potentially related to this thing. Yeah. And like, honestly, like, you know, this is where, you know, when people say like we're on this together, like in, in the world of infectious diseases, like in a literal sense, we kind of are right. Because no vaccine is going to be hundred percent protective ever. Yeah. It's just not the way things work, man. Like things mutate too fast. Right. And so I think that if we think that we can only, well, aren't, we're only going to make it available to folks that can pay for it uh, at, at outrageous prices and then they all get it. Well, like they're going to get exposed to something that that thing doesn't protect against. Right. So it's in everybody's interest that we make this thing widely as available as possible. Right. And I think that there's mechanisms with that. Right. Um, there are people, uh, states, nation states can declare a public health emergency. Right. We've seen this with HIV before. Um, we've seen it with, you know, bird flu and everything, but they can use, um, the trips, uh, international trade laws clauses, the Doha declaration 2001 to declare a public health emergency, which allows them to basically, um, do parallel importing or to basically produce generics, uh, of certain pharmaceuticals without threat of sanction, right? Because it's a public health emergency, right? So I think that to my knowledge, it's much harder to do a generic vaccine than a generic pharmaceutical. And so I don't know what that's going to look like in terms of whether or not if it's a Western pharmaceutical company that gets some type of exclusive patent right to a vaccine, and is not willing to resell it at a price that's affordable for everybody or make it readily available to, 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 to poorer countries. I think that, I don't know what that would look like in terms of the possibility of these countries figuring an alternative way to get a vaccine. And so I think that we'll see that that will probably be a, a conversation that comes out of all of this, right? Um, the, I mentioned before I teach a public health law and policy class. That's something I'll be looking forward to is from some legal scholars and some, uh, public affairs, international affairs folks to get into the conversation about what this is going to look like going forward in terms of, of global health consequences. Word. Man. It's a lot. It's a lot that's going on. I guess we're going to sit, wait, sit back, wait and see, bro, and just, man, hope yeah. for the pray for yeah. the boss, all of that, bro. Definitely. Definitely you, man. Definitely, uh, yeah. Like definitely, I'm, I appreciate what you're doing too. Especially if you keep these conversations going, other folks as well. I think that uh, uh, it's, it's it's good. It's good to have these conversations going. You know what I mean? And so I think that for you, try to also find your side hustles too to keep things keep things alive and and and, and above water. Oh yeah, uh, it's a risk, right? It's a stressful time for everybody, man. But I definitely I definitely appreciate you for sure. No doubt, man. Thank you for coming on and sharing your mind, sharing your expertise. And I always like to wrap up every interview with the Fab Five, man. Five questions that I ask everybody. Okay. Um, first question: What artist or album? 
made you fall in love with hip hop? Ooh, hip hop. I would say uh, Nas's Illmatic. Mm. Um, but I actually heard Nas's It Was Written before I heard Illmatic, and then I went back and heard the Illmatic. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was written, kind of introduced you, but then you had to go back to that to that foundation, huh? I went back to the Illmatic and was like, yo, I think this, I had listened to a lot of like hip hop before that, right? But in terms of like, yo, like that was that was the one that did it for me. Um, but that was the one. Are you a, are you a Nas head to the point where like Jay-Z, you can't really, you know what I mean? Can't really Not to that it? point. I mean, I still mess with Jay. I mean, I think that Jay had me a reasonable doubt. Like that was like, for me, like that's still like the, that's the one for, for Jay, right? So I think that, and that was around the same time as like the, the Illmatic, right? I think it was a year after the Illmatic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that for me, when I think about Jay and my love for Jay, that's the album I think of. Yeah. And so I think there's nothing that Nas could ever say or do to not make me love Reasonable Doubt, you know what I mean? So right. like, mm-hmm. I don't really get into the whole hip hop rap beef thing, man, not at all. But I would say that Ether was the ultimate um that was the ultimate right there's no coming back from that one if you want to talk about a diss track right so yeah. um but yeah i still mess with jay though no doubt that's what's up man and i do have this uh this nas lauren hill pillow oh okay you can see it from uh if i Ooh. ruled the world a little little touch oh, of I right see oh, there go. oh wow that's dope yeah so you know that's fire for sure um question number two if you when you feel overwhelmed how do you de-stress um it depends you know i think that when there's like long days of work sometimes i just like zone out decompress mode and usually that for me um you know go home have dinner with the fam put nico to sleep um and pour a little sipper um and then try to find something to turn my brain off usually in in the world of sports before sports got canceled um, I would just try to find something to watch, right? And for me, it's like, I love sports, right? Um, I play sports growing up my whole life and everything like that. So I think that uh, for me, it's a way to, to just, you know, stay connected to just everyday people, right? I always ask my public health folks, because like no one's in the sports and public health for some reason, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, how do y'all have conversations that don't have anything to do with public health? Like, if y'all dropped you into the middle of America right now at a bar, what would you talk about? Because all the TVs are going to have something with sports on it. What are you going to talk about? Like your your model from your from your new analysis? Like, so for me, it's like, uh, for me, that when it comes down to, to, to decompress and like relax, pour a little sipper, watch some sports. I also, um, I write um, things of that nature, right? And also I find them like, honestly, just hanging out with the little one, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, lots of hugs and cuddles. It's like, it's a, there's an immediacy there where it's like, yo, the world is irrelevant right now. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. It's always good to have that. Cause like for me, it's like, I'm motivated for like these bigger picture things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, sometimes like it's, it's important not to lose sight of like the immediacy of the value of having um, loved ones around, right? And so that helps. That's a fact, especially having a little one around, man. Like uh, yeah. I got I got a 10-year-old and a five-year-old and especially my five-year-old, you know, my, my daughter, my baby girl, you know, she can always give me a hug or give me a kiss and she's super expressive that way. So, mm-hmm. you know, that you can't be in a bad mood when you got the little one around like that, man. So. Yeah, exactly right. Just melt it away real quick, right? For sure, for yeah. sure. Um, if you could choose any one celebrity as your life coach, who would it be and why? Oh, man. I mean, I guess I would have to define how you define celebrity. Um, dead or alive? Uh, I would say alive first, but if you feel like dead is better, then <laughs> add it to one. Man, uh, man, right now, alive? Celebrity? Mm-hmm. I mean, so I don't know the life coach thing, right? But I think that one of my favorite celebrities right now is is d lil damian lillard dame dalla like okay. um so i think that you know i don't know whether about 
maybe it'd be a life coach, but in terms of a celebrity that I actually respect, appreciate, and I would actually maybe rock that jersey. So as a sports fan, I don't rock people's jerseys, right? Because like for me, it's like I don't really give a fuck what you do on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ain't shit off the court, I'm not putting money in your pocket. I'm sorry, homie. Like, it's just not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've had too many instances of, 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 for example, in the last like five, ten years of unarmed black men getting killed and people not saying shit about it because they don't want to lose their endorsements, right? Right. If you ain't down for the cause, I'm not rocking the jersey. Right. Um, so for me, um, I've always had favorite athletes, right? But I don't buy jerseys, you know what I mean? And so I think that Dame, man, I really respect um, his game, first of all. Um, and, and then I think that, like, as a person, you know what I mean? Um, I think that, like, the, I mean, he's a, obviously he's an artist too, right? And so I think that, like, the, the skill he brings to the, to the court, that he brings to the studio, but then, like, just the interviews that he gives. He's just a real full-out, like, perspective, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's what's missing a lot of celebrities, right? They're just on their own celebrity thing about their brand, and they, they don't really bring much depth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the ones that do, they don't bring it in the capacity that they could to make an influence, right? And so I think that that's what I miss about the Jim Browns and the Muhammad Ali's, right? Is that you're famous, um, but you're not really doing anything with that fame or anything like that, right? And so I think that there's various athletes and celebrities and um, actors, actresses out here that are that are doing positive things with it. But for right now, I think that I probably say Dame, like you know what I mean. Uh, and just for context, like my, some of my favorite athletes are the ones that don't really say shit. Mm. Um, like Barry Sanders, favorite football player, Kendrick Virginia favorite baseball player, you know what I mean? Ray Allen was my favorite basketball player before Dame, right? So I think that I've always liked the folks that are just quiet and they go about their business, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I respect that. In terms of, like, dead, though, I'd probably I'd like to have a conversation with James Baldwin. For sure. Uh, right about now, and some, uh, maybe Audrey Lord. If I could bring both of them into this room right now. <laughs> and then have and then have Nina Simone sing in the background, I'd be cool with that. Oh, man. Yeah, that's that would be fire. Especially, man, James Baldwin, bro. I, I feel so bad because, well, growing up in Portland, Oregon, man, we don't get a lot of exposure to, uh, at least in the school system, um, just resources for black history. And there's just mm-hmm. not, a, not a huge black community. And the black community that he, that's here, it's not like overly established. It ain't like we've been here for 100, 150 years. It's just everybody's new here. So um, we don't have like that classic black, like, you know, this is your history. This is what we did, whatever. So mm-hmm. I didn't learn about James Baldwin and really like you know come across his work until about four years ago i went to hbcu they didn't say nothing about james ball what HBCU. how do you go to hbcu i'm not gonna ask you where man because i'm not trying to call nobody out but how no, do you go to hbcu hey bro it's texas southern university man like man, they, I love, talk about, they didn't talk about james baldwin bro. at least the teachers i had you know and so man uh yeah man it wasn't they they weren't on that on that type of time unfortunately you know yeah, yeah, yeah that's crazy man i went to a predominantly white institution where they like to have tiki torch rallies these days apparently <laughs> um and that was like yeah university of virginia oh okay, okay. um but you know my, uh, my mentor my advisor and professor there uh cory walker um who i think is now the dean at um at salem state in north carolina oh that's dope um but yeah like that was like one of the first few classes i took and one of the first few books that i bought you know it was like james baldwin's uh fire next time and then you know um you know, CLR James work and, and Franz Fanon. And so those, those things is right. And so I think that, uh, you know, but here's the thing I was like, I was on that a little bit early, but like, I didn't really, I read it then, but I read it with freshman eyes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so these are like writings and authors you got to come back to with adult eyes. And so I've been doing a lot of that over the last probably like, I'd say four or five years is revisiting some, some of the things that I read. 
um, before I'm rereading them because it's a different lens, a different world, and uh, I think I have a different understanding now. So, sure. so I feel like if you feel like you're late to the game, man, you're probably not missing it because if, even if you had read them um, right. in college, you would, you would, yeah, you would have had to reread them anyway. You know what I mean? So I just got on France for nine. I just got the Wretched of Earth. Uh, yeah, like I think it's a little bit like last year or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's dope, man. I'm teaching the class next term, or, or I was supposed to teach it this term. But uh, next year now on decolonizing public health research, Ooh. and I think that um, you know Franz Fanon and Amy uh, Amy Cesar are going to be uh, really important for for uh, that idea of decolonizing in the context of that. Though, so Franz Fanon is that that work is going to be critical. Yeah, he's, he's foundational, man. And I still need to read uh, Black Skin White Mass because a lot of people that yep. I respect they yep. all reference that book, and so it's just like, all right, I got it. Yep. I am. Yep. Yeah, that's that's some that's uh, between that fire next time, and then uh, Sister Outsider are probably my three favorite in terms of like this kind of category of, uh, of black scholars and academics, right? I think that, um, but I'm, I'm rereading um, Black Skin's uh, White Mass right now, actually. Okay, that's yeah. I'm gonna get on it, I'm gonna get on yeah, it. All right, good. so uh, two more questions. If you woke up tomorrow and found out that you won the lottery for $100 million, how would you spend your money and use your time from that day forward? 100 mil, I mean, that ain't really a lot in the grand scheme. Um, text or untext? It's definitely taxed, unfortunately. So you're probably going to see like 60 of that. Mm, yeah, man. All right. So with 60, uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I mean, one, I would definitely do the immediate things that most folks would do. I think I'd be doing some student loan cancellation <laughs> business. Uh, and, you know, like, I think that make sure my fam's good and all that. I think that that would be where I start, but that's not going to, you know, that still leaves me like, damn, there's 60 million. Right? So, yeah. um, I, I don't honestly. So for me, I think that one of the things I've always joked about with other folks in public health is that if we really cared about public health, what we should have done is become venture capitalists, um, mm. and then become like the Koch brothers or something like that, and have billions, and then just start buying ourselves politicians or something like that, right? Like, <laughs> like I think if I had money like that, maybe I'd go with that route. I think sixty million is not enough to really do that. And I also don't think that that's a way you want your democracy to run. So I probably wouldn't play that game anyway on principle, mm. but I don't really know. 60 million, I don't, honestly, I couldn't tell you. I think that most likely I would end up setting up um, uh, scholarship funds. Um, and then as a public health researcher and interest in public health, um, and then and also art and creative expression, right? I'd probably have scholarship uh, things set up. I'd have some public health training things set up and I'd have some art things set up, right? Um, and of course, strategically find ways to invest that right um sure. what that would look like i don't really know i think historically capitalism tells us you buy you buy space mm. right you buy land you buy property right so um but i have to get up with some smart folks to let me know how i should manage my money for sure yeah. last question it's kind of heavy um you know you wouldn't be around to enjoy this this uh activity but um what message do you want communicated at your eulogy Ooh, man, I don't know. Man, you know, I don't even. I can't. I don't know if I can even speak to that. Like, it's like it's I happening. feel like I feel like that's one of the things that like someone else has to determine that for me. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I think that living the life I'm living right now and the person I am and the work that I'm doing or not doing right. Uh, there's various ways you frame it. Mm -hmm. um, people have different interpretations of, of my work, my life, what I represent, what I don't represent, what I contributed, what I didn't contribute, right? I think that like, it's hard to kind of imagine what that would be like um, because it's hard to, to, to do that appraisal yourself, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would hope that folks would, you know, 
you know, suggest something along the lines of like, you know, I'm always trying to show up the best way that I can, right? Like as my fullest self, right? right. Um, and trying to find that balance between your own self-interest and something that matters more, right? And I think that sometimes those things uh, aren't one and the same. You know what I mean? So I think that, uh, I don't know. I think I, you got to leave it up to the, let, let the record speak for itself, right? And hopefully I get a, a fair and honest appraisal of the record. You know what I mean? You never really know sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a tough one to answer. It is. It's, it's heavy, bro. Like you, you try to think about all that you've done and it just, it does make you think about like, what, what did I not do? You know, like who did I let yeah. down? And so, um, and then it makes you think about like, are, am I doing everything that I need to, that I think I should be doing so that when I'm gone, people will, people will think of me and say the things of me that I think of me or that I think I should be, you know? And so yeah. it helps you reframe how you go about your life and just what you do and how you do it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think exactly. I just hope that exactly. I think that in the end, like, I think a lot of people would be like, oh yeah, I hope that people say that like, I was a good professor. I was a good dad or a good partner. Like, I mean, like, I don't really care if people say those things, man. Like I don't. Um, but I would, I would hope that people feel like that um, there was some type of positive inspiration or impact or something like that, that informed or contributed to how they approach to see the world. Right. I think that, um, you know, for me, it's like, um, can we just get more folks thinking about the complexity um, of the world around us, right? And can I get folks to do to do the really critical thinking and the self-reflection, right? And the reflexivity, that to reflect on our reflections, right? Mm. Um, can we have a better world if, if more folks are doing those types of things, right? And so I try to bring that when I show up. And so I think that when I'm gone, I hope that the the, the things that I brought are still showing up in some way. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it's kind of just like building for things that are eternal, man. Like stuff that, like you said, just timeless things. Like what, whatever I do. Um, and that's, that's something I've been working on personally. It's just like my own philosophy, um, just around life and living that out and making sure that everything that I do, that I strive for, um, it's going to affect people when I'm gone, you know, kind of like, you know, just leaving that impact that Nipsey or, or Kobe, you know, just like that type of stuff where you're just impacting people on a level where, you know, regardless of money or fame or perceived success, like this is what you really meant to people and people's lives are really going to be impacted even when you're, when you're gone. So I'm trying to, trying to set up my life in that way so that I can leave that type of impact. You know? Yeah. I think that's, a, that's what it's gotta be, man. I think that you think about our immediate circle, if we want those things, but uh, and from the broader context, right. We can have that influence on folks beyond ourselves and beyond our immediate family and our immediate circle. Then like, you can't really ask for more than that. Right. Um, but of course it goes both ways, right. There might be some folks out there that wish we didn't exist. Mm. Um, that are hoping to influence the world in that same capacity, right? Mm. And so for me, I think that if anything, people look back on is that um, there are folks out here right now um, that don't believe that that's the world that we should be living in, right? That we all could be here. We all should be here. Um, and are we creating opportunities to have a, a more inclusive, equitable, just world to live in, right? Are we remaking it in that capacity? Are we trying to, to resist the remaking? Um, and take us back in time to a time where only a few folks got to exist and have, have all the rights and opportunities and privileges, right? And so I think that whatever assessment is done on me, I hope they put me in that right category of that type of work, you know what I mean? Sure, for sure. Well, once again, Ryman, I appreciate your time and your knowledge and your intellect, bro, and just, just sharing with us here. Um, for folks that might want to get in touch with you, if they have any questions or they want to follow you on the socials, man, how can folks get a hold of you, bro? I mean, email is the best way probably because I have social media accounts. 
<laughs> but I don't really be on it that much. It's yeah. just like, there's so much going on. It's like, I don't know, I feel bad. Sometimes I drop something on there and people reply to it and I don't reply back. I'm just like, <laughs> it's like six months later and I see that there's something there, right? Uh, um, but my email is probably the best way to do it. Um, so yeah, you can go ahead and, um, do you, are you gonna post that or what? No, I'm just, if you want to share it or not, you know, whatever, whatever case might oh, be. Oh yeah, it's like, uh, you can just do, um, my last name, Petaway, P-E-T-T-E-W-A-Y at pdx.edu. Mm-hmm. It's probably the best one. For sure. I'm sure, you know, if, if someone would have a question, you know what I mean? Like, don't ask me, ask Ryan, because he's <laughs> the expert, <laughs> you know what I mean, when it comes to this conversation. I use that word expert lightly, if ever. Yeah. Well, you, you're more educated, so I would, I would say, holler at the brother that's educated on it, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I'm, I guess credentials, I got a few credentials. For sure, for sure, man. But once again, y'all, this is the Socks and Sandals podcast where society, culture, history, and religion collide. And we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. Holla at y'all next week. Grace and peace.